0: Hello there. Servus. My name is Hayshawn Wade and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about tensions over Ukraine, which have really just stormed uh, all the headlines recently. We're going to talk about Syria joining the Belt and Road Initiative and the UK dropping all COVID restrictions, including vaccine mandates. All that and more, coming up. Alright, let's get into the rapid-fire news. So, Italy's parliament is now voting in a new president. Uh, at, so, because Italy's sort of a, a parliamentary system, there's the prime minister and then there's the president, and the president is sort of like a, a less important figure. He's there, but it's the guy in charge is the prime minister, uh, not the president. In parliamentary systems. Uh, speaking of presidents, though, Armenian President Armen Sarkisian has resigned, and his stated reason for resignation was that. The Constitution doesn't allow much power for the presidency. So, again, one of the things about the parliamentary system that differs from, say, what we have in here in the United States. Taiwan has reported large aerial incursions by China into their airspace. Um, This has been going on for a while. We know this. And it's probably going to continue if we're honest, America recently has ordered that families of its officials and diplomats in Ukraine come home, it's ordered them to come home. Uh, This is likely the US trying to avoid another Afghanistan style situation should things get ugly in Ukraine. And I'll just take a moment to say, uh, like I said in the preamble, that Ukraine has sort of taken the headlines recently by storm. Now, we've been talking about it. I'm almost tired of talking about it. I've said what I have to say on the issue. My position hasn't changed. We shouldn't be over there. This isn't our war. Uh, unfortunately, everyone else disagrees with me, and I have to watch while these people get us into yet another war that everyone's going to ask, why were we there after the fact? And that's I think that's going to be the most annoying part about this all, should there be a conflict over Ukraine. Uh... Yeah, uh, that's the direction we're heading. I hope that people who think more along the lines of me are able to steer this thing away from what it's becoming. But that would mean conceding that the United States has no business in Ukraine and that Ukraine isn't going to join NATO. But again, the people in charge don't want to do that. So it looks like we're on a collision course with Russia. And I have every expectation that that's not going to go well for us, for the simple reason that Ukraine will always be more important for the Russians than it will be to Americans. And on top of the fact that America is a war-weary nation. Uh, Combine that with NATO not having an effective military, aside from the United States and Turkey, this this just isn't going to end well. This really is not going to end well. And apparently I'm the only one who can see that, you know, it it feels lonely at the top, you know, waiting for everyone else to get here. I'm just saying. So anyway, <laughs> uh, even the Pope has weighed in on the Ukraine conflict and he's calling for a worldwide prayer for an end to the fighting. Now, I can't blame America and NATO for the fighting continuing because it's a civil war between Ukraine and the rebels in Donbass. So ultimately, the fighting, if it were to stop, would have to be between those two uh, factions: you, the Ukrainian government and the breakaway Ukrainians. But well, at, at least he's calling for an end to the violence. I don't know if he condones the end that I think is going to happen for Ukraine, but at least he's at least he's on the right side of this. Meanwhile, the Taliban and the Afghan civil society uh, have held. Well, they're holding private discussions in Norway, uh, which is the capital... No, no, no. They're holding private discussions in the Norwegian capital, Oslo. There we go. I misread my own notes. So they're in in Oslo. They're having these discussions, likely over the violence on the streets in Afghanistan. Uh, The Taliban may or may not make concessions for the sake of efficient governance, but ultimately they won the war so they're probably just gonna do whatever the hell they want if we're all being honest with ourselves here uh and there's not much the afghan civil society is going to be able to do about that and this is really the taliban listening for things that are useful for their the sake of their governance that that's basically what these discussions are and norway is sort of the neutral meeting ground for these two uh right across the baltic sea from norway and well sweden Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania are now supplying Ukraine with American-made anti-vehicle and anti-air missiles. So, because they're NATO members, they were able to get access to this equipment. And, well, they're not using it now, so they're giving it to Ukraine. But I'll just make the point that people agitating for a war with Russia, the Baltics just gave away their anti-air and anti-vehicle weapons. They're going to get stomped if Russia pulled up on their border with some T-90s, or T-14 armadas for that matter. They, they're just handing away their military equipment now. Uh, it seems to me, you know, uh, as these developments are happening that are, that's causing this issue to heat up more than it already was, it seems to me like a lot of people in these military establishments are betting all the chips on... Standing up to Russia and Ukraine and winning that that's that seems to be the big bet right now Uh, I'm betting on I'm betting on the bear Uh, some of us are betting on the eagle some of us are betting on the Blue banner with the gold stars. That is the EU. I'm not betting on any of them. I'm betting on Russia. I'll just, just Just so you know where I stand on this one. I'm fairly confident russia's gonna walk away with the dub if this goes down this way and it seems like the forces at play which is nato refusing to stop expanding ukraine trying desperately to get into nato and to get aid from nato the u.s refusing to acknowledge that ukraine isn't a nato ally like that's the easy off-ramp from this crisis they're not even a nato ally we don't even have a defense uh guarantee for them we have no reason to be over there The the off-ramp from this crisis is right there, but we're not taking it. Uh, No one wants to back down, even though we have no business in Ukraine. We're on a collision course, and see, and well, our allies, the ones on the border with Russia, are handing over the weapons that they would need to fight a war with Russia, should it happen. And while they're simultaneously almost guaranteeing that, that war is going to happen... By doing this, I, uh, it boggles my mind. Uh, Speaking of aid to Ukraine, the U.S. military has lent uh, lots of aid to Ukraine. They sent 90 tons, uh, $650 million worth of equipment. We don't quite know what that equipment is yet. Uh, Maybe the details have come out and I just am not privy to them. But I would imagine it's something along the lines of what Trump gave them um, back when, uh, what was it, 2017 or 18, when he was talking about the weapons he gave Ukraine. So like anti-tank weaponry, uh, probably anti-air weaponry as well. So things along that line, maybe artillery pieces. Um, we'll have to see. But one of my, I'll just say that one of my fears with all this, this hype. That's being put behind the Ukraine. I fear. That this sudden swell. This sudden surge in. Supposed support for Ukraine. Is going to make the Ukrainians do something stupid. Like. Go on the offensive in the Donbass. And create the war with Russia. Because Russia isn't going to fight Ukraine directly. Well. Aside from shooting down their air force. But. All is fair in war, I guess. But Russia hasn't put an army in Ukrainian soil. Now, they've they've sent plenty of volunteers to the Donbass. But Ukraine is not at war with Russia itself. And we know that because Ukraine is still on the map and is not a geographic expression of Russia. So we know that Ukraine and Russia are not at war right now. But if Ukraine... Tries to end the civil war that they're in like any normal country would want to do and they invade the rebels Which don't have that much land, but they're snuggled up right next to the Russian border so they can get all that lovely juicy big daddy Russian aid If they try to end this war unilaterally Through an invasion, you know again like any normal country would do in a civil war Russia's gonna intervene And all that equipment they got from America and the Baltics is going to get swallowed when their army gets encircled in the east. Because the the bulk of the Ukrainian army is deployed almost right next to the Russian border right now. Because that's how close this conflict is to Russia's borders. Um, So you get an idea of how little land area the rebels actually hold. The, The Lugansk and Donetsk, the rebels there. They don't hold much land. They're really, really being propped up by Russia. Um, well, not not propped up so much as they're, the line that they're able to hold doesn't leave them with a lot of territory, because they can fight the Ukrainians by themselves. It just, if they were by themselves, the Ukrainians could win the war of attrition, and Ukraine would probably accept a war of attrition if it was just them and the rebels, but they have, the rebels have Russia, so Ukraine is always going to lose the war of attrition. That, that's how much the t- scales have been tipped in favor of the rebels. If Ukraine invades the rebels, Russia invades Ukraine, Ukraine dies. Because their entire military is in the east of their country on the contact line. And they're unable to make a breakthrough. Russia can easily encircle that with paratroopers, helicopter, marines deployed by a helicopter. And troops moving conventionally from Crimea and from the northern part of their border with Russia, it it would be the biggest encirclement we've seen since probably World War II. And it would destroy the Ukrainian army. There would be no resistance left, nothing meaningful against the Russian juggernaut. And then all that juicy equipment that America and the Baltics and probably other countries as well as they're jumping in all of that goes to Russia and then they get lovely they get to put their lovely prying eyes on american made equipment to see how it works and see what its weaknesses are up close and personal it would be an astonishing defeat and depending on whether or not we actually went to war because you had Biden making remarks about any incursions into ukraine would be viewed as an invasion if we, if we actually went to war over Ukraine, and then that happens after the declaration of war, well, s- guess who's screwed? Europe. Uh, guess who technically isn't screwed? America, because we're over here, which tells you everything you need to know about us needing to be over there. And the, w- the retreat will tell you everything you need to know about where America's core interests are. Cause it's, it's not in Europe. But... All this aid being given to Ukraine, I feel, is going to make the Ukrainians do something stupid. And by stupid, I mean do the natural thing, which is try to end the war. So they can get out of this predicament. But that will be the destruction of the Ukrainian state. It's a mess. Poor little Ukraine. All they wanted to do was live. But I guess that is not an option when you're pressed between Russia's red lines and NATO expansionism so i guess they just get crushed in between uh in other news iran china and russia have conducted naval drills in the indian ocean japan has built the world's first liquid hydrogen tanker uh, as they're transitioning away from coal power uh, and they've sailed it to australia where it's going to load up on the liquid hydrogen and it's going to sail back to japan for consumption south Uh, Meanwhile, the Saudi coalition in Yemen has executed an airstrike on a prison uh, Reportedly killing 70 people and this I believe is one of the reasons the Houthis responded by firing five ballistic missiles uh, at the Dubai and Abu Dhabi airports in the UAE Now this attack also featured drones uh, and it destroyed a lot It, it caused a lot of destruction and havoc Fortunately, not many people died, but it could have been worse, because these, these missiles and these drones, they destroyed fuel tanks, they have caused major fires, so there's lots of damage that's been done. Um, uh, three people died, and I believe seven or ten more were injured, so not quite on the scale of the 70 people that died in this prison, but it's pretty bad in terms of the expenses. So, and I guess it's also worth mentioning that it was Iran who supplied the Houthis with these missiles in the first place. Hmm. Uh, Again, quality move by Iran to support the Houthis, and the Houthis are on the offensive, and apparently they're kicking ass. So, great for Iran, terrible if you're the people fighting the Houthis, and terrible if you're Arabia, or in this case, it's really, really bad if you're the UAE, and you're getting bombed by these bandits in the desert who have been given missiles by Iran. So, things heating up in the southern part of the Arabian Peninsula. At the same time, there's a rapprochement going on between Arabia and Iran. So, we may see Arabia pull out, and that'll be the end of this war, basically. Because uh, I don't I don't imagine the UAE is going to be able to carry the coalition uh, against the Houthis by themselves. So, we'll keep watch on how this goes. The Houthis are making their moves. We'll see if it wins them the war or gets them a little bit closer. Uh, to the north, though, Israel has signed a, a submarine deal with Germany to acquire three German-made submarines. The Kazakhstani defense minister was fired for his poor response to the unrest and the attempted overthrow of the Kazakhstani government a few weeks ago. Russia and Iran are now in discussions for strategic cooperation agreements. Iran, in particular, is floating up proposal for 20 years worth of such cooperation. And Russia is also having similar talks and discussions with Cuba now. So, outflanking the American position, and sticking it to America where it hurts the most, the Americas. Uh, so, again, Russia knows where America's real interests are, and apparently the American government does not. Uh, or at the very least, they pretend that they don't, and we'll see how strongly they respond to Cuba, I imagine. If Russia tried to put troops on Cuba, there'd be an incredible response. Way more than anything that we've given for Ukraine. And again, that would tell you everything you need to know about where U.S. core interests lie. And it's not in Europe. Uh, And lastly, the president of Burkina Faso has been overthrown in a military coup. So lots of coups in Africa right now. Uh, Sudan has survived for now. And we'll, we'll see if Ethiopia can pull through on their civil war but that is the rapid fire and we'll get to the meat of this episode in just a minute all right let's get into the meat of the episode the belt and road expands now a few weeks ago and by that i mean the week before last syria joined china's belt and road initiative seriously how the frick did i miss this Uh, anyway this is a major addition to the project as now a direct land corridor can be made running from China all the way not just to the Middle East as was previously the case with the addition of Iran but now that corridor can go all the way to the Mediterranean and from what I understand the primary end destination of the Belt and Road is Europe. Now while I'm sure that other places such as South Asia, Southeast Asia, and East Africa have the potential to prove ultimately more beneficial to China. Southeast Asia in particular, uh, they're growing pretty rapidly in economic relevance. Europe is still the target and is no small prize either. Uh, This is a very large market, I believe around 700 and something million people all in all, not counting Russia. So, very large market. These are, for the most part, pretty wealthy nations, especially Northern and Western Europe. Uh, So, pretty good prize for this Belt and Road Initiative, and it's pretty symbolic if you get to Europe. uh, Because once you get into the EU with one of the EU members, if one of the EU members signs on to the Belt and Road, due to the the open borders nature from... EU member to EU member, like it, the Schengen area, which is where you, you have freedom of movement within the EU and freedom of trade within the EU. The barriers are all on outside the EU, but once you get into the EU, you can move anywhere, basically. So all China really needs is access to a single EU member, and they've essentially gained access to the entirety of the EU. Because once you're in, you're in. So... I believe China is very close towards achieving that strategic end goal of getting to Europe. And once they get in, other countries might follow suit and go, maybe we want infrastructure projects too. I mean, if the Chinese are paying for it. (laughs) But with the addition of Syria, you can go straight across the eastern Mediterranean to Greece. So before, it was from China through Central Asia, you get to Iran, Afghanistan also joined onto the Belt and Road, so there was the possibility of that as well. Pakistan is the one of the flagship countries for the Belt and Road, so lots of South Asia is a part of this as you inch into the Middle East. That entire block from Pakistan, Afghanistan, um, Iran, and I believe all of the Central Asian countries. So that's Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan. Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and Kyrgyzstan. I believe they are all members. If not, I am pretty. I know for a fact Kazakhstan is. And I'm pretty sure at least the majority of them are members of the Belt and Road. So from there, you go through Iran. And I thought that the next step would be Turkey. Because that would enable them to go straight from Iran into Europe uh, on the continent. Not Europe as in European countries, but on the continent. Because Turkey has a little piece of it that's on Europe. But instead, we went from China to Iran to now, a little bit over, and There's skipped Iraq, you get to Syria. Now, I don't imagine Iraq is going to oppose railways running from Iran to Syria, especially considering they allowed truckloads of oil to go from Iran to Lebanon, which is straight across both them and both Iraq and Syria, to get to Lebanon. So, I don't think Iran's going to make itself an obstacle for infrastructure and development projects that run through the region, not just based off of what we're able to see now, um, with things that aren't even the Belt and Road. So, I believe that with the addition of Syria, you now have a straight shot across the Middle East, because from Syria, they have a coastline on the Mediterranean, which means that with Syria, you can go from uh, the Middle East to... the, You can go across the Eastern Mediterranean, and you can go to Greece, you can go to Italy, you can go to southern France, you can go to Spain. Remember, China only needs to get one country in the EU to sign on to the, the Memorandum of Understanding with China, i.e. the Belt and Road Project, and they have access to it all. So, if Spain were to join... Or if France were to join. Or if Italy or Greece were to join. That's effectively the entire EU joining. And they have access to Syrian ports now. Which I'm sure will be developed at some point. It's sort of a a feature of the Belt and Road. You develop ports so they're bigger and badder. And they can handle greater capacity. So we'll probably see something like that in Syria as well as Iran for oil exports to China. But, um, likely to see that. Um, the Belt and Road, if it, if, uh, you know, truthfully speaking, truthfully speaking, the Belt and Road could end its journey to Europe right where it is, truthfully. It could end right where it is. Because with Syria, you can go to all of Southern Europe and You could end. you could really you could really just end it right there and you wouldn't lose much because you gained access to the Mediterranean Which is where a lot of European countries are But why do that when you're only one country away from reaching Europe? That one country being Turkey Uh, Again, because Turkey has a little piece of it that is in Europe so with the addition of turkey not only do you gain access to the black sea as well so that that means romania bulgaria ukraine the warm water ports of russia you gain access to georgia a country that is almost landlocked if it wasn't for its access to the black sea you gain access to turkey itself which is a big a big boy in the region you gain access to the southern parts, well, the southeastern parts of Europe. So, Turkey would be quite the major addition. Turkey is, uh, I believe, a prime candidate for the BRI. I really believe that. Uh, Because Turkey's economy, well, I'll just go through the reasons now as to why I believe Turkey will join the BRI, not just that they're a prime candidate, but I I think they're going to join it. Uh, so, I'll just list off some of the reasons here. Turkey's economy is faltering right now. This is primarily due to the crashing value of their currency, the Turkish lira. This has been going on for quite some time. I know I've been reading certain articles about it and listening to certain programs, well, episodes on the Duran channel about it. They call it programs on there. It's very adorable. But... <clears throat> I've been keeping up with it a little bit, I know it's steadily getting worse um, and it's been going on again for quite some time now, but the effects seem to have only recently started to be really felt by the country, like the squeeze of your currency losing its value at a rapid pace is now starting to be felt by the population and the government really. So, Turkey's president, Erdogan, has been looking for ways to stabilize the country's economy. He's been trying to get money from foreigners, um, like he did with Arabia, where he got billions uh, to help try to stabilize it. Uh, But that obviously didn't work, since their currency is still losing value, and the economy is still faltering. Um, But, as far as I know... Even in spite of this and in spite of them looking for ways to stabilize the economy and the currency Turkey, Turkey hasn't tightened the budget they're continuing their deficit spending but they're investing the money that they borrow into infrastructure projects which will still be there even after say a default so that being said this combination of factors Uh, An economy in trouble, a currency in trouble, uh, leadership actively looking for uh, not so much, uh, I guess, not so much solutions to the problem, but rather money for investment into infrastructure, uh, I guess, as a as a countermeasure to the inevitable default that's going to happen. Those combinations of factors leads me to believe Turkey's going to join the Belt and Road. Uh, again, they're looking for infrastructure investment. I mean, come on now. China would love that. Uh, it, they'd be, it, Turkey's just a wonderful candidate for the Belt and Road. Turkey wants money for infrastructure and economic development. The Belt and Road is all about infrastructure and economic development. The two go together Perfectly. And all this is made possible by all because little Syria decided to make some money moves. And i got to say, Syria is becoming quite the hot topic. Not quite as hot as Ukraine has suddenly become, but they're becoming quite the hot topic. And for the first time in a while, it's in a good way. It's them piecing together their fragmented country. Uh, And uh, also on a side note. Their joining of the BRR is a silent affirmation of China's recognition of the Assad government as the legitimate government in Syria. So that's sort of a, a silent diplomatic victory for the Assad government as well. And now Syria is going to be able to access funds from China for building roads, ports, airports, railways, power plants, cell towers, and houses. They'll be able to acquire clean drinking water. They'll finally be able to start clearing up all the debris that's just littered in cities throughout the country. And, quite frankly, the investment money is exactly what Syria is going to need to do all this rebuilding, Uh, especially after this incredibly long and devastating war, which has been prolonged by foreign interventions left and right. Uh, Now, they're still being bombed routinely by Israel, but i imagine even that's gonna end sometime soon so things are really looking up for syria well at the very least they're starting to we might see a very different syria a uh, a decade or two from now and i imagine it'll be a, a better syria even if it's still Assad in office and he lives to 70 80 years but syria is looking like things are taking a turn for the better and what can you say other than, that's a good thing. So, now, let's talk about the UK. Because they've done something very interesting. Now, what, have they, what, what, is, what has the UK done? What, why am I making a segment on the UK right now? We have Ukraine about to die. Or <laughs> or Taiwan about to die. Why am I making a segment on the on the british on the british right now what would make the british Isles so important at this moment in time well i'll tell you the uk ends lockdowns and restrictions completely and totally last week the uk's prime minister boris johnson announced the end to all lockdown measures within the country and this is huge probably as huge as brexit In terms of where the country is right now, so in relative relatively speaking, this is a very huge move, Uh, especially current courtesy of the lockdown measures and where the economy is courtesy of those. But this is a huge move. And this move by Boris was brought about uh, likely as a response to the wide criticisms that have been made of him over a recent scandal where he was caught at a party not following any of the rules his administration had imposed on the rest of the country since the pandemic broke out. People were very upset. This was not the first time seeing something like this. Uh, Not the first time that it's happened in Britain. Not the first time it's happened in, well, a lot of places around the world. I remember Nancy Pelosi was caught uh, (laughs) getting her hair done in California. Even though no one else was allowed to do it, this was back at the at the height of lockdowns in America. Every everyone sort of eased up and ac- accepted that you can't stay locked down, and we're slowly but surely, you know, easing off the failed policy that is lockdowns. Certain states have gone all the way, like Florida and Texas and South Dakota, never locked down. But we've seen instances like this where people imposing these rules don't follow them at all, and it makes people very upset. Now, unfortunately for Boris, this came at a time when he was on the ropes politically. He, had, Again, he had been under heavy pressure politically already before this. Uh, so this was probably looking like the last nail in the coffin that would lead to him being ousted as the prime minister. But fortunately for the people of the UK, it seems like Boris, in an attempt at political survival, has outflanked both his opposition and his dissenters alike with this move to completely end the lockdowns, to completely end the restrictions, uh, and to do away with vaccine mandates and vaccine passports and IDs. He's done away with all of it. Overnight, the UK has become a free country in the sense of no more COVID lockdowns. Which, relative to a lot of other countries, definitely makes them free. So, he's (laughs) he's definitely won himself lots of support with this move. And I imagine that as things start to improve, people will support him even more. So, he's gone from being on the ropes to probably, probably the most untouchable man in the government right now. We'll see how long that status lasts, but he's... He's definitely turned the tide on what was looking like him getting ousted from power. But now, the UK is joining the ranks of countries like Russia, India, Sweden, um, who don't have lockdowns anymore. And I think China as well. I think I think they've ended their lockdowns. But at the same time, I, I'm pretty sure that they've reimposed some of them in select areas. I, I can't really be sure about China Any. Anyway, the UK has reopened their economy, and this will have some major consequences. Most of them will be positive for the UK, uh, and that's a good thing, I'll just say that. For the longest time, and by longest time I mean the eternity that has been the last two years, countries have been artificially killing their economies, not with COVID, but with the lockdowns, i.e. the response to covid but now, the UK has completely done away with these artificial restrictions, and will likely see a relatively swift rebounding of their economy, with the impediments that come with global supply chain issues. But, all in all, they're probably going to see a, a swift recovery. And their recovery is going to demonstrate that it wasn't COVID that killed economies, it's it was the lockdowns that killed economies, so... Uh, another vindication for yours truly on this one. I'll just pat myself on the back. You can't see it, but uh, yes. I love being right. <laughs> but anyway, um, this will have consequences. Good consequences for the UK economy. And I, within a year, I expect the UK to be seeing some major growth again. If they haven't started seeing growth by the end of this year, because we've only just started, 2022, so they have 12 months to go from uh, stagnating to falling to growing again. We'll we'll see where they're at by the end of the year, and that'll definitely, if they're doing well, that's definitely going to make some people upset, namely the people who voted to remain in the EU, uh, even even though they they'd be one of the beneficiaries of that positive development. Uh, But, um, also, because, again, this is going to have consequences, I believe this will exacerbate the feud between the EU and the UK. I I believe this wholeheartedly. I believe this undoubtedly, unquestionably. It's going to make things worse between the UK and the EU. Why? But why, though? Why? Well, as we've observed... Over these past two years that I've been with you the EU doesn't like the UK That that's just been made plain it's been made clear it's been made obvious to anyone who so much as looks at Europe the EU does not like the UK the EU imposed travel restrictions with the UK back when everyone was locked down because of the Delta variant they imposed restrictions with the U.K. over production of vaccines because the U.K. was acquiring them and producing them more efficiently than the E.U. was. Uh, so, with petty, relatively petty things like that, the E.U. imposing re- travel restrictions and attempting uh, unofficial sanctions on the U.K. economy and with France incursion, doing incursions on U.K. territorial waters, for fishing, and the constant flow of migrants from EU territory to Britain, um, it, they, you can tell, all right, you can tell that the EU just does not like an independent UK. So, if the UK takes this dramatic action, this dramatic step, which I believe is the right step, but this pretty radical move in the opposite direction of where everyone else is going towards total abolition of these nonsensical rules and the eu doesn't do that well it's going to create a greater disparity between the eu and the uk uh and it'll, it'll be observable within a few months i believe where people are going to be looking at the uk seeing them going about life as usual not not this new normal whatever that was supposed to be if you remember that the the new normal, remember, uh, whatever that was supposed to be, the UK is not going to have that. They're going to be back to normal, normal, and the EU is going to be locked down. People are going to see that, and this is going to exacerbate the feud between the two. Uh, I have no doubt that a UK with zero COVID restrictions, zero lockdowns, and a rebounding, at which in time will be even growing economy will bring about another round of hostilities between the two, just by the UK existing as an entity outside the EU, and doing better than it, or doing well without it at the very least, because that that's the baseline. right? The UK doesn't even have to outdo the EU to upset the foundations of the EU. It just has to exist as an entity that is no longer a part of the EU. And it has to not fall into disarray and death and destruction. And by doing that, its existence proves you don't need the EU to have a functioning country. And this isn't something the UK is going to do intentionally. But it's something that's just there. Because of them existing outside the EU. A zero restriction. UK will be a much more attractive trade partner something very crucial to britain as it seeks to expand its trade with as many countries as it can they're talking trade deals with australia trade deals with japan trade deals with canada eventually a trade deal with america we're still the jury is very much still out on that one i know for a fact they're not getting a trade deal with the eu so that one's out completely out of the cards if they wanted to if they really wanted to this would require a change of course in their entire geopolitics they could have a trade deal with China they could have a trade deal with Russia they could have a trade deal with Iran and Turkey Turkey is not a part of the EU as a matter of fact Turkey is hostile to the EU Britain could get a deal with Turkey Britain outside the EU can do its own negotiating and and that doesn't come with the baggage of having to worry about other countries and other countries interests, like the EU does. The EU is not a nation, it's a collection of nations. Uh, Britain is a nation and its constituent parts are clearly subordinate to the larger government. So they're able to do this uh, in spite of whether Scotland or say Wales has opinions about it. (laughs) Or maybe Northern Ireland. The UK can negotiate its own trade deals. Uh, The EU has a much harder time doing that. Because it's not really quite the unified entity that its image would project. Which is why it's better at imposing restrictions on itself and its member states than it is at imposing its will on countries outside the eu it's proven very very bad at imposing its will on other countries or even even conveying what it wants to other countries because it's never quite on the same page spain always wants something different from poland italy always wants something different from uh denmark Greece is always going to want something different from the Netherlands. It's just really hard for them to be cohesive on anything because of how uh, (laughs) drastically different everyone's interests are. And they're not subordinate to the larger EU government. They go along with it, but as countries in the east of the bloc demonstrate... EU law is always going to be secondary to national law going along with EU law has been a choice Poland and Hungary, Hungary especially, is now questioning whether or not EU law should even be viewed as equal to national law. Hungary asserts that its national law is superior to EU law, Poland is right behind them, the EU obviously doesn't like that, but just instances like that make it hard to convey what it is that you want. Again, the EU is not a country, it's a collection of countries, which is why, and those countries have such drastically different interests, that you can't really call the EU a great power, even though countries within the EU could be considered great powers, like Germany and France so the differences on the light-footedness of the british versus the slow and encumbered nature of the eu even though the eu has size and population to its advantage and resources no doubt but the british existing as a separate entity from the eu makes it hard for the eu to justify to member states particularly in the east and in the southeast or even in Italy, that, hey, you need us. It makes it hard to make the case that you need us when a country that used to be a part of the EU is no longer a part of the EU and is and hasn't collapsed into anarchy. In fact, the British have now abolished COVID restrictions, and their people are going to be going on about their lives. And what are people in the EU going to be doing? The same failed policies that haven't ended the pandemic for the last two years. People are going to see that. Again, none of this is going to be intentional on the part of the British. As is evident just by the way they got to this point. Which was by Boris Johnson. uh, Implemented as an escape from a scandal that he got himself into. So, none of this is intentional by the British. Their existence is just that much of an ideological danger to the EU. And this is why the two will never be able to have meaningful talks to one another. This is why the two will never really be able to get along with each other. Britain's existence undermines the justification for the EU. That's just the way it is. The Brits haven't realized that yet. The EU hasn't put that into words yet, but that's the way things stand. That's why the EU is constantly so hostile with Britain and is constantly trying to prove something with Britain, this tiny island country who happens to have a decently large economy. But you look back in 2020 with the vaccines and how they were rolled out. The EU made a huge deal. About vaccines and how they were going to get it. They are going to do it better. Uh, and there were people in Britain talking about, oh, look at how Europe is doing it. they they doing it better. They have this, this, and this. And then the EU bungled the response and Britain ended up with a higher dose production and acquisition than the entirety of the EU. That's just astonishing when you look at it that way. Britain, a country of 60, what? seven, sixty-eight million people manages to acquire more vaccines than the EU. A country well, a not country, a collection of countries. Uh France in particular has just as large of a population. Germany has a larger population. These countries who are rich and have the means to acquire vaccines and produce them, you you'd think that a block of them together would easily be able to Outproduce Britain in vaccines or at the very least be able to buy more Britain ends up with more vaccines than all of Europe combined. That's that was an astonishing figure that I came across back when the vaccines were first being rolled out and It was the remember it was the EU who made the big deal about the vaccines and then they fell behind and Suddenly they became hostile. They, they shifted the hostility towards Britain over Britain doing better. So they they started the fight and then when they lost, they blamed the British for just looking after themselves as any country would. The the very existence of Britain as a sovereign entity that is independent from the EU is an ideological danger to the EU. And now the, EU, the UK's economy is going to be growing while EU is under lockdown with stagnant and falling economies. So you're definitely going to see the disparity between the two. You're definitely going to see people who are already upset about the way things are looking at the UK and going, well, why can't we have that? Why can't we have what they're having? They did it overnight. So it's obviously not, not a struggle. Why can't we have that? The EU is going to... They're going to struggle. They're going to struggle dealing with this. Um, Again, it's just the very existence of the UK that presents the EU with this challenge. I mean, honestly, the UK with zero restrictions is going to exemplify two people in the EU who are already rioting over lockdowns and vaccine mandates. That you don't have to be that way. People are going to ask, why can't we have what they're having? And the EU, truthfully, is not going to have an answer for that. Even though you, it's not really a matter of the British not being a part of the EU. It's more a matter of domestic internal politics in Britain. It, it has nothing to do with the EU. But there will be people who make that connection and go, you know, the common mistake of causation and correlation people are going to do that it's going to be very powerful because people are upset with lockdowns and the covid measures because they go along with all these and they just don't end people have people who have done everything that's been asked of them and the pandemic still doesn't end they're going to look at that and what britain's doing and they're going to get upset and there's not there's Nothing that the EU is currently willing to do or say that's going to bail them out on this one. And that's just going to make them hate the e- the, the UK more because now they have to deal with the unrest. And the UK is not going to have to deal with that anymore. Uh, that's another thing I didn't even think about. If the UK has no lockdowns and no COVID restrictions, they're not going to have to deal with the anti-vaccine mandate riots and protests they're not going to have to deal with people r- protesting and rioting over masks and the mask mandates they're not going to have to deal with people protesting and rioting over being fired for the vaccine over the vaccines if they don't have those if they don't not have people upset over not being able to dine inside of a restaurant because they didn't have their vaccine ID those are people who are going to go back to work. Those are people who can go back to work, I should also say. Because they don't... If you get rid of the mandate, people can go back to work. Because at this point, um, I, I myself was fired from one of my jobs because I didn't have the vaccine. Now, I had another job. And it me more money, so I didn't mind the loss too much. But Britain... They don't have the vaccine mandates anymore, they don't have the mask mandates anymore, they don't have vaccine passports and IDs anymore. All those people who were essentially rendered second-class citizens under the the COVID system are now free again to interact with the economy again. People are going to go back to work, the UK is not going to be struggling with supplies, not internally at least, the UK economy is going to be growing. The UK economy is going to be producing things, and the, a lot of the world is still going to be stagnating. The UK, as it seeks trade deals, is going to look toward these countries, and they're going to—they're just going to start gobbling up trade partners if they're smart, mind you. If they're, if they're smart, they're going to start gobbling up uh, trade partners while they have the relative advantage. If their economy is not locked down and everyone else's is, well, the UK economy is pretty large. It's over a trillion, I'm pretty sure. That's, that's a massive economy. That's a massive differential that Britain can now leverage, especially once they've made their recovery. So countries locked down will be in a weaker position relative to Britain Britain gets the better deal because if Britain has recovered economically or is almost recovered economically and other countries at that point then just come out of their lockdowns and their COVID restrictions, Britain has the better negotiating position because their economy is already back to 100% and the countries they're negotiating with will need Britain more than Britain will need them. Britain will have the better negotiating deal. Britain's going to be the better partner. They're going to be a, a very appealing partner because of their, the abolition of restrictions. This move, which has been made almost haphazardly by Boris Johnson, may have just secured Britain's place as a major, major trading power. Singapore on the Thames, as some of the pro Brexit advocates uh, like to say. And it might just end up that way. Singapore on the Thames. This is definitely an opportunity for Britain uh, due to the, sh- the shift in the relative balance of power, which could be undone at a moment's notice, as Britain has demonstrated. But governments, particularly uh, France, seem not to want to do that. Uh, we'll, we'll see if Macron wins, He'll if he continues the lockdowns, or if he tries to undo them at the last second to win the election. That'll be something interesting to see. But for now, Britain is shining. And the rest of the world is going to be paint, looking very closely at Britain. All eyes are now on the UK. And what the UK does, there's going to be people who try to lambast any problems that may arise as, oh look, see... You shouldn't have undid the lockdowns. Oh, look, see, you shouldn't have had Brexit. But Britain's probably still going to have a strong recovery. And that's going to make them a strong country. Even stronger than they would be normally because everyone else is artificially weaker right now. We are on the verge of potentially an incredible change for Britain. uh, Beyond the undoing of the lockdowns, but I'm talking trade deals out the wazoo so um yeah the total abolition of covid uh lockdown policies such a dramatic change uh the ideological arch nemesis of the eu has back at it again uh and we're probably gonna see (laughs) terrible relations with the uk and the eu over this move in the future Um, or over the consequences of this move in the future, as the British get back to becoming an uh, exporter. And the EU, who has locked down their economies dependent on imports, that could create a a bad trade balance for the EU with what trade is able to get through. And that's going to make the EU upset with the British even more. But alas, the British are now a free country. So, regardless, though, of how the UK got here, things seem to be looking up for Britain, too. And that is all I have for you today. I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. We got some pretty good news out of this, you know. I I could have spent a segment talking about the doom and gloom of Ukraine, and I, I guess I kind of did as well, you know. Uh, I just chalked that up to an update to the Eastern question at this point, because it's almost unavoidable. It's the biggest, one of, one of the biggest stories in my field, so I can't quite avoid talking about it. Uh, but I can mitigate how much I do so that I don't annoy you by saying the same thing over and over again. But we got, we managed to get some good news out of this. And my, my two major stories good news, good news for Syria, good news for China, good news for Britain. Terrible news for the EU, uh, on ideological terms, not economic, but overall, pretty good news. I'm sure the people in the UK are going to appreciate not being locked down anymore, and this may even have a cascade effect. Uh, And I guess this is another opportunity to test my my hypothesis on the European, uh, the unofficial precedent rule in Europe. So yet another example to test my hypothesis. We'll see if more countries follow suit after what Britain has done with undoing the lockdowns. That'll be pretty interesting to watch. But that's all I've, that's all I got for today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing, folks. And we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Sean Wade. And you've been listening to this week in geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday. Say Avus.